Hello, and welcome to the fourth podcast in our series, On the Top Shelf, which deals with topical issues in IFRS that impact clients operating in the retail and consumer industry. My name is Shreya, and I'm a Senior Manager in PwC's Accounting Consulting Services. I'm joined today by Renita Dwarika, a partner in Accounting Consulting Services. Now, Renita is an expert at business combinations and consolidations, which is where the spotlight for our podcast is today. Welcome, Renita. Thank you, Shreya. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Now, this year, 2021 thus far, has seen a lot of activity in the market. We've seen a number of business acquisitions within the retail and consumer industry. For example, earlier this year, the market saw Clicks make an offer for Pick and Pay's retail pharmacy business as it accelerates the expansion of its pharmaceutical network. We have fashion retailer Mr. Price that acquired Yuppie Chef and Power Fashion. And ShopRite, Africa's biggest retailer, went to market indicating that it would acquire some of Nasmart's wholesale and retail chains. And the list goes on, very busy year for business acquisitions in our industry. Now, naturally, this being an accounting podcast, all of these acquisitions are making us think about business combinations. But before we can get into IFRS 3, which is the business combination standard, there are actually some big pitfalls within IFRS 10, consolidated financial statements, that people can sometimes overlook. Don't you agree, Renita? Yes, absolutely, Shreya. Now, though people think IFRS 10 is old news, it continues to be topical and it can impact material transactions in the market. So hopefully we can unpack some common pitfalls in the podcast today. Great. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Let's get into it, beginning with the basics. Now, the group in IFRS 10 is a parent and its subsidiaries. The financial statements of a parent and its subsidiaries must be presented as a single economic entity, which we've come to know as the consolidated or group accounts. Now, to create this parent-subsidiary relationship, control is required. Renita, can you give us a high-level recap of what constitutes control and what some of the common pitfalls are when assessing control? You are right, Shreya. Control is central to establishing the relationship of a parent and subsidiary. Now, the term parent is defined in IFRS 10 as an entity that controls one or more entities. A subsidiary in IFRS 10 is defined as an entity that is controlled by another entity. So as you can see, the key principle is that control exists and consolidation is required only if the investor possesses power over the investee, it has exposure or rights to variable returns from its involvement with the investee, and lastly, it has the ability to use its power over the investee to affect its returns. So control is not always established through majority shareholding. Mm, Some interesting points coming through there. So how do people typically go ahead and assess what control even is? Well, we could talk about control assessments all day. Essentially, it's inherently a mix of qualitative and quantitative factors that come together within the assessment. So IFRS 10 focuses on the need to have both power and variable returns before control is present. So power is the current ability to direct the activities that significantly influence returns. Now, these returns 
can vary and they can be positive, negative, or both. The determination of power is based on current facts and circumstances, and therefore, these should be reassessed should those facts and circumstances change. Now, generally, the factors that an investor should consider during the assessment of control over an investee are the investee's purpose and design, secondly, what the relevant activities are, then how decisions about those relevant activities are made, whether the rights of the investor give it the current ability to direct the relevant activities, whether the investor is exposed or has rights to variable returns from its involvement with the investee, and lastly, whether the investor has the ability to use its power over the investee to affect the amount of the investor's returns. So quite a mouthful there, Shreya. Thank you so much for that framework for assessing control, Renitha. I think that an investor with more than half of the voting rights would typically meet the power criteria, that is, in the absence of any restrictions or other circumstances. Now, in practice, though, getting into some practical understandings here, where do you see judgment coming in when doing a control assessment? Now, where do those gray areas typically exist? So one of the gray areas are with employee trust or charitable trust. So sometimes companies will set up a special purpose vehicle in the form of a trust. They then appoint some of their employees or directors as the trustees. And here, often the debate of trustee independence comes in. So one of the questions that comes to mind is whether or not employees in key management personnel roles are considered to be the de facto agents of a reporting entity. Now, if the employees are assessed to be de facto agents of the reporting entity, then their presence on the board of trustees could then be attributed to the reporting entity. And as a result, you would tick one of the boxes on the control assessment. Hmm, good points on the independence of trustees. Moreover, I think that even if you got to having a board of these theoretically independent trustees, you could still get to control if their actions are predetermined and that special purpose vehicle is essentially on autopilot. So, for example, within a special purpose vehicle designed by an investor that has a detailed trust deed that almost dictates exactly what the trust should do, that sounds a bit more like control. Yes, you always need to think carefully about special purpose vehicles like trusts. Like you've said, if the trust runs on autopilot for the benefit of the founder, it could suggest that the founder actually controls the trust. Now, another area of judgment with charitable trust includes reputational risk. Sometimes the name of the trust will carry the name of the reporting entity. And therefore, reputational exposure might create an implied commitment for the entity to ensure that the trust operates as designed. However, it's important to note that reputational risk alone does not provide evidence that the entity does have power over the trust. You'll have to look at the trust deed and consider who set up the trust amongst a host of other factors. Hmm, thank you for that list of watch out for items. Quite a comprehensive response there. Now, moving on, I think another area commonly overlooked are special rights given to minorities at the point of an acquisition. 
So typically, if a company has acquired, let's say, 80% of a business, the remaining 20% is the non-controlling interest, commonly referred to as NCI. Sometimes, that NCI are given special mechanisms to exit the business and put their interest to the majority shareholder. Could you maybe touch on this issue? Absolutely. This is sometimes an area that is overlooked. Now, like you've said, sometimes a parent might write a put option on shares in a subsidiary that are held by non-controlling interest. The put option provides the non-controlling shareholder with the right to force the parent to purchase the shares. And this will be in accordance with the terms and conditions of the put option. Now, a purchase call option might also accompany the put option, and it might be on exactly the same or similar terms as the put. The call option provides the parent with the right to force the non-controlling shareholder to sell its shares to the parent, again, in accordance with the terms and conditions of the call option. So taking a step back, I think that IFRS 10, the consolidation standard, and IFRS 3, the business combination standard, does not quite give us guidance on how such contracts should be accounted for in a business combination. There is also a lack of guidance in the standard regarding when such contracts are entered into by a parent subsequent to the business combination. IFRS 10 and the standards on financial instruments, IAS 32 and IFRS 9, all need to be considered holistically in determining the appropriate accounting treatment. But I think this whole issue could be distilled into two key questions. Question one, whether or not to de-recognize the non-controlling interest, this NCI we've been chatting about, as a result of that put option you've mentioned. And the second question, whether subsequent changes to that put liability should be presented in profit or loss or equity. What are your thoughts there, Renita? Shreya, I think it's important to remember that the financial liability to settle the forward or the put option is always recorded. So this will be a function of the actual contract and how the liability will be settled. So the recognition of the put liability is definitely something to watch out for carefully. Now, when it comes to the recognition of non-controlling interest, there is diversity observed in practice. In our view, two approaches are generally acceptable when accounting for the non-controlling interest. So preparers can decide that either the principles in IFRS 10 take precedence, so that is one approach, or those in IS 32 will take precedence, so that's the second approach, and therefore an entity will have to determine their accounting policy. Okay, sure. I think I'm following you here. So if we say IFRS 10 takes precedence, then the terms of the forward and option contracts should be analyzed in order to assess whether they provide the parent or the non-controlling interest with access to the underlying risks and rewards associated with the actual ownership of the shares. I think I just want to stress a bit more the point you touched on a bit earlier. Irrespective of the outcomes of the risks and rewards analysis that I just mentioned, a financial liability, recognized at the present value of the redemption amount, is recorded to reflect the forward or put option. The financial liability is recognized at the present value of that redemption amount. Yes, 
And if IS-32 takes precedence, a risk and rewards analysis is not performed and the non-controlling interest is de-recognized when the forward or the put option liability is recognized. The financial liability is measured and recognized at the present value of the redemption amount. And if the forward or put option is entered into as part of a business combination, then here it's important to remember that there would not be a non-controlling interest recognized. So we've discussed a lot about this initial recognition focus. What happens to the subsequent measurement of the put liability, Renitha? So here, Shriya, there's also diversity in practice regarding the subsequent changes to the financial liability. Now, this diversity exists because there's conflicting guidance between IFRS 9 and IFRS 10. Now, the predominant approach that we have observed in practice has been that finance charges are recognized in the income statement, which is then in line with the guidance of paragraph B5.4.6 of IFRS 9. On the other hand, we've also observed in practice adjustments to the redemption liability being recorded in equity. But in our view, the application of this approach, so the recording in equity, is only supportable where, firstly, IFRS 10 takes precedence, and secondly, the risk and rewards are not transferred to the parent. So NCI, or non-controlling interest, is still recognized, and therefore, the adjustment in equity can be viewed as a transaction with non-controlling interest. We've covered a lot of complexities and pitfalls to think about when it comes to acquisitions in terms of IFRS 10 thus far. We've considered entities running on autopilot for the benefit of the founder. We've also chatted about reputational risks as well as accounting for sometimes overlooked rights of NCI or minority shareholders. Yes, these concepts are quite complex and I would suggest that our listeners consider engaging with PwC where there are significant judgments or uncertainties. I definitely agree. It can seem a lot to keep under control when dealing with business acquisitions. Thank you so much for your time today, Renitha. I hope to have you back on the podcast very soon. Thanks for having me, Shreya. It was great joining in on the podcast. And I hope to be back in the aisle soon, looking up at the top shelf. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the South African member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com forward slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Mm -hmm.